Good afternoon. Thank you all for being here with us today. I'm Sherry Bauer. I'm the regional executive um, based here at our Miami Ranch in Doral, but I work for the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta. Fun fact, so one of the many roles that the Federal Reserve plays is to provide financial services um, to financial institutions, one of which is distribution of cash and coin. And the Miami branch here based in Doral is actually the third largest distributor of cash and coin for the Federal Reserve system after New York and San Francisco. So we have a very exciting program for you today as we're joined by two esteemed economists who will answer all of your pressing questions about inflation and interest rates. But first, I would like to thank Miami View College for hosting our event here today at the Wilson campus. Uh, and also thank you to the Economic Club for having us having this great event with us here today. Uh, before we dive in, I'd like to introduce Dr. Mulu Harrison, Executive Vice President and Provost, who will give some welcoming remarks, and then I will introduce our two speakers. I'm going to do some sort of abridged bios, because if I read everyone's bios in the hall, I think we would be here for hours. So Dr. Harrison is a respected leader with more than 35 years of transformative leadership experience, championing the cause of underserved students in public higher education. She has served in various capacities at the college, including president of multiple campuses and dean of students. Throughout her tenure, she has led the establishment of many high-impact partnership initiatives at the college that have furthered equity, academic excellence, and student success, as well as holistic services such as Single Stop, Year Up, and Educate Tomorrow. She's also a prolific writer on educational issues, serves on several boards, and has been recognized for her leadership with numerous awards. So, Dr. Harrison, thank you. Thank you so much, Shari, and good afternoon. It is such a pleasure uh, to welcome each and every one of you here to Miami-Dade College. Uh, for this uh, convening this evening. We have many students in the audience, and I have to tell you that partnering with the Economic Club of Miami is truly meaningful for us for that very reason. The fact that we are able to provide the opportunity to our students, our Miami Day College students, to learn from experts and economists such as uh, Dave Alte, and let's give uh, Mr. Altig uh, a round of applause and a welcome on behalf of Miami and Miami. But you know, we're growing global citizens here at Miami Dade College. And along with our students, we have faculty here, we have uh, chairpersons, we have our dean of business, and other colleagues in addition to the Miami community. And uh, this is one of the most important weeks on the academic calendar for Miami-Dade College. And so we're happy that this convening is taking place this week. But on Saturday, we will graduate over 12,000 students from Miami-Dade College. Students who are earning associate degrees, baccalaureate degrees, as well as career certificates. Why is that important in the economic scheme of things? It's so important because Miami-Dade College is contributing to the socio-economic impact here in our community. We're coupling a very robust liberal arts and science program with a workforce development and training program that really provides a synergy for students to go out into the world, to be on the world stage, 
as employees, as entrepreneurs, as leaders, if you will, because of their start at Miami-Dade College. And so we're very proud of the outputs that our college produces in terms of graduates. And we're also proud of the partnerships that we're able to procure and to convene with companies all over Miami-Dade County, throughout South Florida, regionally, and also internationally. And so with that, I want to again welcome the Economic Club of Miami. We are your partner. We were so happy to partner with you recently when you had a fireside chat with Ken Griffin um, right here in our auditorium. And you know, apart from the academic and workforce training aspects of life, so to speak, Miami-Dade College is also a cultural convener. Miami Book Fair hails from Miami-Dade College. The Miami Film Festival hails from our institution. And as a matter of fact, as it relates to Tech Month this month, you may have seen where the college yesterday launched its second artificial intelligence center right here at this campus, the first one of which was at our North Campus. Again, bringing that economic impact to Miami-Dade County in so very many ways. So tonight, I know I'm very much interested in learning more about inflation, um, what we can uh, look forward to, um, not only here, but um, throughout the United States and internationally. And I'd like to welcome you once more on behalf of President Madeline Pumariega and the 123,000 students that are enrolled here at Miami-Dade College across our eight campuses. Welcome, bienvenidos, bienvenue. Thank you. So let me quickly introduce Dave and John, and then we can get started. So Jonathan Hartley is an economist, investor, and researcher. He's also currently a research fellow at the Foundation for Research on Equal Opportunity and an Economics PhD student at Stanford University. He previously graduated from the University of Chicago with a BA in Economics and Mathematics with honors, an MBA from the Wharton School, University of Pennsylvania, and an MPP from the Harvard Kennedy School. John worked in various roles at Goldman Sachs, the World Bank, the Committee on Capital Markets Regulation, U.S. Congress Joint Economic Committee, and also the Federal Reserve Banks of New York and Chicago. And Dr. David Altig, is the Executive Vice President and Director of Research at the Atlanta Fed. In addition to advising the Atlanta Fed President on monetary policy and related matters, Dr. Alton oversees the research division, which includes the team of economists, the Regional Economic Information Network, and the Community Economic Development Function. Dr. Alton is a fellow and immediate past president of the National Association for Business Economics. In addition, he is a member of the Advisory Council of the Global Interdependent Center and its College of Central Bankers, and a member of the National Business Economic Issues Council. With that, David Young, thank you. that uh, very kind introduction and um, I, I also uh, just want to uh, thank Miami Dade College for hosting us. Uh, for those you know, who aren't aware, I mean, Miami Dade College is a, a, an unbelievable institution. Uh, I believe it is actually the largest uh, school in the United States by enrollment. 
Um, and just in terms of um, the service that they're providing students um, here in Miami is just um, un un unparalleled um, in scope. And so uh, again, uh, if we could have a, just a, a round of applause for Miami to call I want to get uh, straight into this, um, and, and for the students um, who are here, and maybe those that are a little less familiar with uh, the FedEx, I just want to um, get into um, uh, how the FedEx is structured, and what is the Atlanta Fed's role in Miami. Uh, we sort of, uh, there are 12 regional Fed banks out there, uh, they're part of the Federal Reserve System, they're the Federal Reserve uh, Board of Governors based in D.C. Um, but what does it mean when you know, Miami falls into the Atlanta Fed's regional district? Why don't we have our own Federal Reserve Bank of Miami here? Uh, can you explain a little bit about how uh, you know, how Miami falls into the sort of greater scope of monetary policy making and influential regulation? Sure, sure. And I want to I want to thank you for the invitation to come here, and uh, especially Miami Day College. I mean, we're uh, a long relationship. Uh, the Atlanta Fed and uh, a very happy relationship and are big fans of everything uh, that happens here. Um, so uh, you're trying to create a coup, I think, by my colleagues here. So if you want to know why the Federal Reserve is structured geographically uh, as it as it is, I don't know the answer to that exactly, and I'm not sure anyone exactly knows the answer to it. It goes back to 1913. Um, uh, essentially, the 12 district banks were designed to be banks, uh, bankers to banks. Uh, and it was roughly sort of organized along, around the lines of population, uh, where the banks were in terms of their market capitalization and all sorts of things, not to mention some political elements that uh, came, came into play. We're um, the sixth district of the uh, Federal Reserve System. Uh, we actually have five branches. Uh, our uh, region covers from uh, basically Nashville East in Tennessee, all of Georgia, uh, all of Florida, all, all of Alabama, southern Mississippi from about Jackson down, and southern Louisiana from about Baton Rouge down. So, we actually have the, the very best cities in the country uh, and, and our district. And it represents, um, in terms of its industrial mix, uh, it looks very much like the United States. Because if you think about you know, Miami versus Nashville versus New Orleans, these are very, very different places with very different cultures, with very different uh, business mix uh, across. And so we're able to use that footprint to uh, get a pretty good picture about what's happening uh, in the national economy. And that is one of the fundamental roles of all of our branches uh, and the work that my colleagues here uh, at the, at, with the Atlanta Fed and the Miami branch do. We're about a week and a half uh, from an FOMC meeting. Uh, and so we are deep into the rhythm of an FOMC uh, meeting. So that rhythm sort of starts this week, really. So Sherry and her, her, her colleagues have been out uh, ever since the last FOMC meeting trying to get answered with boots on the ground, uh, getting information 
from business contacts throughout the South Florida uh, in our Miami branch case. Answers the questions that uh, are, uh, we want to know about, which are the questions I think are probably going to come up in our conversation. Uh, we will meet with the board of directors for the Miami branch on Friday, and we will ask them the same questions and basically ask for their input on what's going on in the economy from their business's point of view um, and, um, and what should we do about it uh, as, as policy makers. That will all go back to Atlanta uh, next week uh, when Sherry and her colleagues will report to President, President Bostick, uh, what they've been hearing over the past eight weeks or so. Uh, we'll have an Atlanta, and then a bunch of economists will weigh in with a bunch of economisty stuff. Um, uh, so one day is data, what the data is telling us, what models are telling us, and another day is what people in the real world are telling us about what's going on. And then we'll have an Atlanta Board of Directors meeting. We're trying to all consolidate it all uh, in, at the end of next week in writing kind of the policy positions and statements about the economy that President Bostic will uh, take to Washington. Um, very, very much the stuff that we hear from, you know, maybe many of you, uh, and the information that um, Sherry and the other members of our teams in the branches throughout the district uh, collect makes its way to the table in, in, in Washington. I can't remember, I've been at this a while, I can't remember a single meeting where part of our statement at the table to Raphael's colleagues on the committee um, did, you know, where some anecdote and set of information that we had collected from our outreach um, and, and, and in the district didn't end up as part of the conversation at the table. So that's, that's you know, it's the, the, the branches really are the voice of uh, our constituents, which is you, uh, directly to the policy-making body in Washington. Fantastic. I'm a big fan of uh, Raphael. He's, um, I've seen really a PhD as well, uh, but I'm a bit biased. In terms of your role as research director, one of uh, your uh, big responsibilities is putting together economic forecasts for the <coughs> Fed and, and briefing uh, the president and, and leading that. Um, policy um, uh, decision making process within uh, the Atlanta Fed as we get up to uh, the FOMC meetings um, that, uh, that come up every six weeks or so. Let's dig into your outlook and um, your forecast. Where do you think GDP, inflation, unemployment, uh, where do you see those going? Uh, what, what are your forecasts? Uh, GDP down, inflation down, unemployment up. Uh, so, you know, we, we go through this exercise uh, where four times a year, we actually publish what our forecasts on those things are. So at the last, we won't do it at this meeting, but at the last one, um, uh, we, we did publish that. You know, the narrative about the, I thought I was going to actually have to show, uh, you know, a couple weeks ago, I thought I was going to have to show up here today and completely change my tune about what was happening after I know we'll probably talk about the failures of a couple California entities um, uh, later on, but I was a little bit fearful that um, 
my story was going to have to fundamentally change. It hasn't. And I don't think our story, and so when I say our and we, I got, I mean, I have, I'm contractually obligated to say the views that I express are not necessarily those of the Federal Reserve System. And when I say we, I really am talking in our role as a, as a policy advisors at the Atlanta Fed. So what is the Atlanta Fed staff thinking? So, you know, by the time we got to the end of last year, our story was, uh, was pretty much that it was likely that uh, we were going to see some uh, softening in the economy. Associated that would be continued but slow progress on inflation. Uh, and associated with some of that softening in the economy would see some cooling off in labor markets and some um, noticeable but not really dramatic increases in the unemployment rate or slow down in the pace of employment growth. That's my story and I'm sticking to it. I mean, it's, uh, at, at, as of yet, that seems to be the track we're on. Um, what that means for policy, the policymakers are going to decide. But if you look at the summary of economic projections that were uh, uh, published uh, in March, um, you know, the story was that kind of outlook with growth kind of flat for the rest of this year, kind of do the math and think about what the first quarter looked like. Uh, the minutes from the FOMC meeting came out uh, and one of the big splashy pieces of news from it was, so there are two things that happen at a meeting, well, there may be more than two things, I suppose, but one of the things happens at the meeting is there is a, uh, a presentation by the staff of the Board of Governors, and they give their outlook. And then all of the participants, all the presidents and all the governors go around and give their outlook, some of it which is published in the Summary of Economic Projections. Interestingly, the staff uh, projected a recession. Uh, and that was in the minutes. That was not kind of hidden or anything. Uh, the committee numbers don't really quite add up to that, uh, but it is uh, kind of flattish soft growth for the rest of the year. The rate of inflation ending the year in the kind of low three-ish uh, uh, area, and the unemployment rate ticking up some, the story I just exactly said. And, um, you know, as I said, I mean, I don't think that there is anything happening yet that we've seen. We're going to hear a lot in the next week uh, uh, from lots of people. But we still seem to, seem to be on track for what feels like um, uh, the proverbial soft land. Yes. I want to get into a point of First, I want to talk about inflation. A lot of people are, in general, uh, a little bit uh, upset about inflation. We're trying to figure out what, what's going on with it. Um, inflation is now uh, one that it sort of uh, peaked at uh, some of the uh, greatest highs in almost 40 years since the 1980s. Um, it, it, inflation hit nearly uh, 8%. It's now back down to uh, about 5% uh, in the headline measure, uh, almost 5.5% uh, for if you look at core inflation. So the Fed has had this. Um, 2% inflation target officially since I think 2012, but sort of unofficially since the early 90s. Um, why 2%? Um, uh, there's been you know a number of I think commentators and economists that said maybe we should change this to 3% or 4%. Uh, why 2%? Why, why should the, the Fed stick with it? 
Yeah, so I think it's sometimes forgotten by people that the 2% was not a number pulled out of thin air. There had actually been a lot of thought about it. I mean, kind of the, the pat answer is, well, New Zealand had already done 2%, so why shouldn't everyone else do uh, 2%? And in fact, all kind of advanced economies decided they'd latch on to 2%. But there's actually some great uh, articles written by Ben Bernanke back in the kind of early 2000s where he kind of laid out the case for 2%. And uh, the logic went uh, as follows. Um, we want low inflation. And in fact, in some world, zero would be the best. And actually, if you're all, if any of you are old macroeconomic students, Milton Friedman said it should be actually negative. Um, well, that did not seem to be uh, the ideal rate of inflation because there was the issue of when time gets times get tough, you want to be able to cut interest rates. And if rates of inflation are very, very low, then the buffer for being able to cut interest rates is going to be small. So what you're trying to do is you're trying to set a balance between what's an interest rate that would give policy room to maneuver if needed, and rates of inflation that were not so high that they were significantly distorting decision-making in the economy. So there was a bunch of analysis done. I, this is maybe not reflecting well on my profession. Um, so, um, and, and there's, no reason, there's no reason for it to. So I mean, I'm trying to, I'm trying to hide anything. There was a bunch of analysis done at the time that indicated 2% was a number that was low enough to actually not do much damage to the economy. And, you know, there are various views of how you define what price stability is. Alan Greenspan used to say all the time, the rate of inflation is low enough that nobody thinks about it. 2% uh, um, uh, you know, seemed like that was plausibly uh, fitting that definition. And then the analysis that was done was basically modeling that says, well, if you ran a 2% rate of inflation, the circumstances under which you would have to drive interest rates to zero would be relatively rare. That was essentially a time when people believed that the inflation-adjusted rate of return on treasuries was going to be something like 2% or the normal 10-year treasury rate was 4% or something like that. And on the way, uh, reality kind of mugged us and um, that turned out to be a period of time post-2000 when kind of structural interest rates just fell a lot. And of course, we've now hit the zero bound on interest rates several times. That is sort of the rationale behind people saying, well, maybe we ought to up the inflation target uh, to reflect the fact that kind of structure, the structure of interest rates uh, in the world economy, not in the United States, but in the global economy, has changed. But the problem is then you run into the issue of, well, if you go above 2%, are you still honoring this notion that you want inflation rates that are so low or low enough that people aren't really thinking about it and they're not having to protect themselves significantly against inflation, wages aren't kind of persistently falling behind. And Chair Powell and every member of the Federal Open Market Committee has been very clear that they're not inclined to revisit the 2% question. 
And if you wanted a rationale for why that, that's more than just being stubborn, um, I, that, this would be my rationale. My rationale would be, look, I mean, one of the things we've discovered in this episode, inflation kind of is ravaging to, uh, to the economy. Um, and you know, not least by individuals who are the most vulnerable uh, in the economy. So we, you know, we don't want to run into this world. And uh, I've heard various, you know, there's various uh, views on how high is too high. But if you say something like four percent, I think that's starting to get into territory where you really have to worry about whether you're uh, fixing the problem of running. Uh, too low on interest rates by doing something that is in the end kind of course for the economies. Yeah, I remember too, um, you know, just uh, Chair, uh, Chair Bernanke has been talking many times about the, the risks of deflationary uh, spirals and that there's been so great, uh, and that's why we want to have a 2% inflation target over 0% uh, inflation target. I think it was favored by uh, folks like um, Paul Volcker and, and others. So, I'm sure I was a little more adamant about why not zero? <laughs> yeah, it, yeah it's, it's very interesting to think that you know, period in the, uh, the talk about a period in the early 90s when this uh, was uh, sort of, I guess the Fed was transitioning from uh, the bull era to the Greenspan era, and uh, that was, I think, the time when inflation targeting uh, came in. I want to talk uh, a little bit about uh, the balance sheet, just a little bit. Um, so interest rates are at uh, 5%, just below 5% now, uh, federal funds rate uh, just below about 5%. Uh, and, and it's certainly one of the uh, Fed's main tools uh, in, in helping to bring down inflation. Um, what is the balance sheet's role in, in bringing down inflation? And, and um, where do you think the Fed's balance sheet uh, should be? Uh, well, that's a, you turned an answer that was easier for me to answer it than one that was harder for me to answer. Um, so the, the, the role, so it, it's, Again, there's going to be hundreds, you know, there's going to be differences of opinion, kind of on on, on this. But I think that most Fed um, economists, uh, in any event, tend to think of the balance sheet and interest rate policy as substitutes for one another. Uh, don't forget the um, uh, the reason that you know on that kind of discourse I had about choosing two percent. The reason they wanted to stay away from zero is because once you get to zero, you got two choices: do nothing, um, uh, make interest rates negative, which has never been uh, felt to be viable actually in the U.S. economy. Um, we're not bank-centric enough. There's too much uh, opportunity for disintermediation. It would be a problem. Um, so uh, balance sheet policy came into play during the financial crisis exactly because we had hit zero and couldn't really cut interest rates anymore. And so balance sheet policy was a substitute uh, for what otherwise would have been cuts in interest rate. The committee has said many times that it wishes, uh, or that it, uh, it chooses to make uh, interest rates the primary tool of monetary policy. And um, there's a recognition that the balance sheet needs to be lower. Um, but it's going to be made lower, kind of running in the background. There are various estimates of what the so-called quantitative tightening um, uh, plan would imply if you, if you translate it into an interest rate effect. 
50 basis points is maybe something that kind of comes up very often. But the idea is to make it kind of invisible and really do the work of fighting inflation, keeping the economy on even keel while you do it, is going to be done by the, by the interest rates. What the terminal point of that process of running down the balance sheet is, is actually turned out to be a much trickier question than I kind of ever thought it would have been. You'll remember we were doing it at one point, uh, not all that long ago, and then we ran into the fall of 2019, and we found that um, the um, size of the balance sheet, which we thought would be appropriate for smooth functioning of treasury markets, for example, uh, was much larger uh, than kind of the plans. Um, I, you know, we stopped in the well over a trillion dollar range, trillion and we thought we would get down, you know, estimates kind of varied again, but thought we would get down to, you know, 500 to 800 billion in reserves in the banking system. Uh, that turned out to not really be appropriate for the smooth functioning of financial markets for reasons that I don't think we don't fully, uh, you know, haven't fully worked out uh, quite yet. Um, that almost certainly has to do with regulatory changes after the uh, financial crisis. So we're so far away from where kind of, you know, probably the size of the balance sheet needs to go that uh, it's not really a live question at this point. But sooner or later, it's going to kind of pop back up and this sort of issue of how low is too low on the balance sheet is actually going to reemerge. Uh, and be one of the, you know, in my mind, uh, one of the next really important policy questions we have to answer once we get over this uh, inflation episode. I'm confused about uh, inflation expectations. How important do you think inflation expectations are for monetary policy? And there's a couple of different schools of thought. I think a, a sort of pretty traditional school of thought is that they matter a lot um, and that they sort of, you know, if you can shift inflation expectations, then can sort of shift inflation. Um, but then there's some people that argue that there's sort of like an identification problem there, like well, maybe it's, maybe the uh, inflation expectations are going up because inflation is going up. That's sort of a reverse causality kind of thing. Like how important do you think inflation expectations are for, for policymakers to follow? Um, well, there's always an identification problem, so that, you know, that never goes away. But um, in my, uh, you know, my, my um, and I think that this is, a, again, a pretty pervasive view, uh, uh, certainly for policymakers in the Federal Reserve System. And expectations are everything. Um, if uh, you lose control, if, if you conduct your affairs in such a way that, that people began to expect the rate of inflation five years from now, whatever the time frame might be, is not going to revert to something like you say it's going to revert to. You have lost. Uh, you have lost the battle. Uh, Bob <coughs> said this all the time, so can you kind of listen to him. Uh, he would say things like, uh, "There were always these accusations that when Paul Volcker, uh, uh, you know, made made the big change he made in '79, saying we aren't going to target interest rates, we're going to target kind of how fast money grows." And the consequence of that was interest rates went through the roof. Uh, he was always sort of accused by people of, of uh, 
Chinese true motive that what he really wanted to do was raise interest rates that was high. He always said, no, that's not what I wanted at all. Because, you know, I thought, here's what, yeah, I thought two things. Uh, the first was, everything we were trying to do to beat inflation in the 70s wasn't working. So Milton Friedman had been bugging us for a long time about control the money supply to control inflation. So I said, well, why not try that? Uh, the second thing was, is I thought I would uh, walk into the room. Uh, I would say, um, I'm here to bring the rate of inflation down. Uh, and everyone would salute. And inflation expectations would moderate and all would be good. And he said, I walked into the room and then nobody saluted. <laughs> and so consequently, the, the price of bringing the inflation rate down was so high uh, as we went into the kind of early 80s, precisely because you had to convince people that you really meant it. And the only way to convince people that you really meant it was to stick to your guns and endure the pain. And that was fully because inflation expectations battled with it lost and uh, those expectations are starting to build to wages the whole wage price spiral story is really about expectations becoming self-fulfilling uh, in the economy and making it very difficult to, to reverse we are not in that circumstance now and i think one of the ways to interpret um, the the public pronouncements of uh, Fed policymakers is we have no intention of letting that happen. I want to get into just unemployment a little bit. Um, and we talked a little bit about top lending earlier. I guess the sort of whole debate around uh, uh, the Phillips curve is something that the sort of say the Phillips curve is that it's, it's sort of the classic trade off between unemployment and inflation. That you know, the idea is that you know, if you get um, higher uh, unemployment, you get lower inflation. Uh, that you know, a number of people in, in sort of popular media, like um, Larry Summers and, and others, have argued that you know, in order to get inflation down, we need to get unemployment up to five percent. Um, and I guess if, if you think that we can have a soft landing, I mean, so far we haven't really seen any sign of unemployment going up, even though inflation's been falling. I'm curious, like, what, what your take is on um, sort of the state of the folks curve and, and this potential for a soft landing where we get sort of a, I guess a disinflation like we've been seeing, but without a, a significant bump in unemployment. What do you think that's uh, how, how likely this scenario is? So um, the Phillips curve is a story that persists because say something say. <laughs> that's good. Because we can't think of another. So the way we usually get it, so I don't know, I guess everyone's familiar with Phillips curve is this notion that high unemployment will put downward pressure on inflation and low unemployment puts upward pressure on inflation. So the policy's job is to engineer these changes in the unemployment rate uh, in such a way that to control, control inflation. Um, now, the relationship between inflation and the unemployment rate kind of broke down on us. So we kind of came up with these stories that, well, the Phillips curve used to be kind of really steep, and now it's really flat. Um, so, so we made up the explanation for why it wasn't working. Um, you know, we're doing our best. I mean, anyway, but confession is good for the soul. And, um, um, you know, I 
want to have a, you know, when I leave the stage of life, I want to have a I can meet my maker on its way. So, so I gotta say, look, the Phillips curve is not a, a stable relationship. It is a narrative. Uh, and I think it's best understood as a narrative. And the narrative goes along the lines of, look, yeah, I mean, if you've got a significant mismatch between demand and supply in the economy, you've got to close that mismatch somewhere. And if you're a monetary policymaker, you can't do much on the supply side of the economy. Basically, the only thing you can do is kind of try to soften uh, demand. And I do, you know, I do think there is truth in that story precise estimates of what it kind of takes and whether in all circumstances you have to drive the rate of unemployment up to some uh, specific, uh, precisely estimated level is sort of a, a, a lost cause, uh, I think. Um, the soft landing scenario uh, really kind of relies on the notion that as real wages, as we begin to close the gap between demand and supply in the labor market. Um, and I think it is showing some signs of closing. That, and, and we still see persistently higher than pre-pandemic levels of wage growth as real wages catch up to the inflation. That that's gonna be kind of uh, absorbed in business margins. Earnings are going to soften. Uh, and those prices, uh, those costs on the labor side will not be fully, in any event, passed on to consumers. So um, the soft landing is you don't have to hammer absolutely the labor market to see progress on inflation, which was created in this event by a confluence of things. Um, some of them are resolving themselves already. Some are not resolving themselves so quick. One of those things to resolve is very accommodating monetary policy, which has you know, now moved into restrictive phase. So I, I, I think this general, when I said, you know, I'm gonna stick to my story that I've been at for about six months, it is this story that we can block, that there's enough organic adjustment in the uh, inflation rate uh, as a result of the extraordinarily unusual circumstances of the pandemic, um, that we can rely on that in combination with appropriate adjustments in policy, some slowing down in the economy uh, to get to where we need to get on inflation without um, an outsized uh, amount of pain to the real economy and to workers. Well, I, I appreciate your, uh, your confession on the, uh, the Phillips curve. Um, and um, maybe um, uh, if someone can come up with uh, an Alfie curve uh, as, uh, as maybe a replacement. That would bound to be I want to uh, get to sort of the big elephant in the room, and that is um, Silicon Valley Bank and signature bank uh, failures. And you know, what do you think their implications are for the, the banking industry and financial stability, and you know, could they uh, weigh on it? And how do you diagnose uh, this whole you know, potential banking crisis? Well, I mean, there's lots of there, there's lots of things to diagnose, uh, and one of them uh, is obviously um, what happened. You know that this uh, that SVB uh, and uh, Signature Bank 
were allowed to uh, get into the state that they were clearly in. Um, they were very unusual entities. Um, they didn't look at all like a, like normal banks. There will be questions about, well, okay, then who noticed? How did they notice? What was done about it? Um, I, I won't say anything more than that for two reasons. One is um, I like my job. Um, and you know, there's if, if there's anything I'm forbidden to mention, it's it's about this. Um, it's okay. There are the San Francisco regional district, not the Atlanta. Yeah, well, that doesn't help. <laughs> uh, we're all we're all part of the same team. Um, and also, I mean, I actually don't know. I mean, I, I honest, I honestly, this is easy for me to put on this because I I do not know uh, what happened and why. That will be the subject of one report uh, from the Board of Governors. Vice Chair Barr uh, will issue his report on the kind of ex post analysis of the, of the events um, in May. Uh, I'm, I'm sure there will be a bunch of others uh, weighing in on exactly what went wrong. And, um, you know, I was talking to some folks this morning about it, and I said, well, you know, and I, I hope as that analysis takes place, um, Part of that analysis is also uh, what went right with so many other institutions. Because one of the things that, um, you know, I said it earlier was that I was fearful that I was going to have to show up and kind of, I'd be telling a very different story about, uh, about collapse uh, very broadly. It didn't happen. Some of that's because of the policy response uh, to, to the events. but. Also because I think there were lots of things done right in this environment where the key channel by which monetary policy is working now is this sort of credit channel associated with um, interest rates that has kind of emerged. So, I mean, here's another confession I'll make. Um, um, you know, we don't like to show up and, you know, we like to show up and tell you what we're thinking. I realize that. Um, so, um, tightening monetary policy tightening uh, cycles are, of course, about you know constraining credit. Um, now, you can constrain credit either on the demand side of the credit markets or the supply side of credit markets. And very honestly, in Atlanta, we were kind of pre-SVB among the economists, not necessarily the regulators. And I don't want to paint them with this brush. But we were very uh, focused on the demand side. Okay, what sectors of the economy are really sensitive to higher borrowing costs? And has that changed over time? So does that make our tools less powerful now than maybe they were in the past? These are the kind of things we were discussing and contemplating. And I think what SVB revealed, one of the lessons of this, was that, no, 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 this was going to be about the supply side of the credit and it's going to be about kind of credit uh, constraints operating through the banking system. It was already kind of obvious before SVB, because if you looked at things like the Senior Loan Officers Survey, which, by the way, has become kind of a, a, a bellwether uh, indicator in this particular cycle, it was already showing that the supply side of the credit markets uh, was going to be uh, the story and was already the story of the monetary policy uh, effects of the interest rate increases by the FOMC. 
So we learned, I think, an important um, uh, um, lesson there. Maybe lessons too strong, but it really refocused our attention on okay, as we go forward and we think about things like how high is too high, and um, you know what, where we sh where should we be looking for kind of the real effects of monetary policy operating? It's going to be on that uh, credit side, uh, credit supply side. The other thing we learned is that uh, we this was an exercise that we had never in the Federal Reserve done before, which is truly separated out interest rate policy or policies designed to fight the inflation rate from financial stability of policies aimed at keeping things from blowing up like they did in the great, uh, great uh, recession of global financial crisis. So if you think of the last times we kind of worried about instability in financial markets, it was the global financial crisis. So we introduced a whole bunch of kind of new facilities uh, to kind of make sure that the financial market system did not collapse. But we did that simultaneously with cutting rates down to zero. Same thing in the pandemic. The pandemic hit, we opened up a bunch of lending facilities to kind of get kind of financial markets through this period and we cut interest rates back down to zero. This is the first time where we've actually implemented a policy combination where we threw a bunch of liquidity into the system through the bank term funding program uh, to make sure that the issues that confronted SVB with respect to having to go to market and sell your securities if you are losing deposits and losing, you know, a day, $2 billion or whatever it was. At the same time, uh, the committee turned around and continued to raise interest rates to fight inflation. So I think it was an important uh, um, event in the sense that uh, there was the demonstration that we could actually deal with financial crisis at the same time not give up our macroeconomic goals and, and implement the policies that are important to achieve those goals. Um, and you know, we'll, uh, it's early. You know, so I always should say, so far, so good. Um, and, you know, I could show up here in six months and the story will be very much different. But I think this is really sort of an important kind of um, uh, recognition that this was, this was feasible and a feasible policy combination that um, uh, allows us to fight the fight uh, on the many fronts where it's presented itself. So. Uh, one last question. Uh, before opening it up, uh, uh, questions from the audience. And this is a big one uh, on uh, the future path of, of interest rates. I think it's something on, on a lot of people's minds. Uh, the Fed funds uh, futures and euro dollar futures markets expect, uh, or are pricing in, uh, the, uh, they expect the Fed to decrease interest rates by the end of this year. Uh, the federal funds rate, as I mentioned earlier, is just below 5%. Um, what is your forecast? for where the Fed's fund uh, uh, rate goes uh, say over the next uh, few years. And, and has any of that sort of thinking changed around you know, what's just happened? The banking crisis is huge. Sort of mentioned that there's a potential there for a credit supply shock that could sort of uh, introduce uh, tightening um, on top of um, uh, the existing tightening uh, that uh, the Fed has introduced to the system over the past year. 
I'm curious what you think about future monetary policy. Well, I'm keen to like my job, um, so I will, uh, I, I, I will not venture uh, a personal opinion. I will simply point out that in the summary of economic projections, and really from the narratives you hear from Fed speakers, the story is pretty clear. The notion is, um, so Raphael has many times you know, kind of told the story you want to think of this tightening cycle in two phases. The first phase was just getting back to neutral. So you can think about kind of the, the, the 75, you know, the ramping up into the 75 basis point per meeting move as a recognition, okay, we gotta at least get back uh, to neutral pretty, pretty quickly. And then the second phase, which really sort of takes us to the end of the year, is actually getting into tightening monetary policy uh, uh, region. The median summary of economic projections have, uh, and of course there's dispersion of those. The, so the summary of economic projections, which are the forecast of the FOMC, as mo most of you know, uh, they're not, it's not a single forecast. It's at 18 or 19, depending on how many governors you have showing up at the, uh, who are on the, on the board at the moment. They all have, they all submit their own forecast. So they publish the median and they publish the, the full distribution of, of, of the um, projections uh, for the federal funds rate, for GDP growth, for inflation. The median has, is at like five and a quarter, uh, section 125 uh, basis points, holding there until the end of the year. The timing is not specified in those, obviously, but. Um, we don't know whose dots are whose. You don't know whose are whose, but if you pay attention, you can figure it out pretty, pretty easily, <laughs> um, for, for the most part. I mean, you know, the, the, the thing about, I like to kind of point this out. Um, uh, the thing about Chair Powell, uh, the thing about um, uh, virtually all of the Fed uh, FOMC participants is what you see is what you get. I mean, there is a, you know, you know, I, I've listened to the press conferences re re religiously, and um, I, you know, it, it is an attempt to be completely transparent uh, about the nature of the conversation and the thinking of, 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 the, of the committee. And sometimes are clear, it's clearer than others, and that almost always reflects the, the range of opinion uh, in that room. I mean, the chair is trying uh, to do his level best at really conveying uh, the sense of what the conversation was and how that led uh, led to a decision. So, you know, they everybody's been pretty clear that kind of the intention is get to where they think they gotta go, and then um, Raphael's language is be purposeful, be, be, be resolute, be resolute and patient. So resolute in getting to where, um, you know, we think we need to go to meet our objectives of low inflation. Um, and, um, and resolute in not blinking the first time, um, the, you know, the, the going gets a little bit tough. I like to point out uh, that if you're some, if you're my age, um, and there's quite a few people in the Federal Reserve System who are uh, at the top 
top who are roughly my age, you grew up in the 70s and 80s. I mean, you grew up with, uh, with uh, the experience of what happens when monetary policy goes wrong and allows the inflation rate to, to run out of control. And it was traumatic. I mean, it was traumatic for the economy. It was traumatic for real people. Um, so that lesson is not forgotten by the, by the folks on the committee. The market clearly has a different view. Um, one of us is going to be right. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll find out who. I think for the most part, as far as you know, I can tell, there are many people in this room who actually uh, can speak uh, more authoritatively about this than I can. I think in general, the difference of opinion really has to do with different uh, macro forecasts. So I think that uh, the market seems to be articulating a view to the extent that the market can articulate a view that the inflation rate is going to come down faster and the economy is going to weaken more significantly than what is reflected in the, uh, the summary of economic projections by the committee. Um, and um, that, you know, in the end is, you know, is going to be borne out by the facts. And, who has a more accurate assessment of the way this is going to go. I don't think it's because of confusion about what the Fed is likely to do. I don't think it's um, um, a, a real difference of opinion about objectives that the market may have versus the I think it has to do with just different views of the way the economy is going to evolve. Um, if you're skeptical about the soft landing story, then um, then the question is going to become, well, what does resolute mean? I love the uh, fascinating. I love the whole uh, inflation experiences um, discussion too. Um, it's a fascinating economics literature, um, just about how people's uh, it's sort of a behavioral economics thing about how you know, people's uh, childhood experiences, things like you know, recessions or um, inflation, certain um, impact their beliefs um, for the rest of their lives. So, you know, uh, 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 yeah, I guess folks might be running for sort of they did uh, have, have sort of very different forecasts about, uh, about things. Um, well, before we open for questions, I just want to uh, if you get a round of applause for Dave. Uh, Dave also. Uh, and how we're going to do this is um, once um, I'm going to first you're going to put up your hand. I'm going to point to you, and then um, what's going to happen is um, you're going to uh, actually go to the microphone here. Um, yeah, you guys can just line yeah, up. Yeah, yeah, actually, you guys, even better, you guys can just line up in front of the microphone. And, and by the way, um, for those of you that use Twitter, um, feel free to tweet about the event using the hashtag EconClubMiami uh, for any questions or comments you want to put. So thanks. And, and while and people, let's keep the questions very brief so we can get to as many of them as possible. A question, uh, it's, uh, it's a question on a comment. And while people, while people line up here, for those that are interested in learning more about the Economic Club of Miami, uh, you can go to our website, EconClubMiami.org, uh, and learn about um, uh, our future events, uh, along with, uh, if you're interested in becoming a member, and you can fill out an application form uh, and, and submit it to us, uh, which we will review. Um, there's uh, benefits to being a member of the Economic Club Miami, including um, you get to attend events like this for free. You also uh, uh, get access to uh, additional member retreats, 
um, and VIP uh, events with our speakers. Um, and without any further ado, I will I'll let Rodolfo start with our first question. I was just wondering if you would agree with me that that uh, uh, orgy of government spending, which uh, passed last year, it was named uh, the uh, Inflation Reduction Act. If that, uh, to me, that was grazed, uh, and even by Washington D.C.'s uh, low standards for honesty. I wonder if you would agree with me on that. Good Lord. <laughs> I've never been at a Federal Reserve uh, event before where the words orgy and confession were both honored. So I think we're, we're breaking new grounds here. Um, I, uh, look, I'm going to put it this way. Um, so, you know, there is an interest, it, it, it's not only an interesting, it's a very important question to say, you know, how did we get this sort of inflation kind of outcome? That we've got, and I, you know, I do think there are three elements of the story, and you know, I don't know exactly how to weight each of those elements, but one was clearly the supply uh, disruptions in the economy, which persisted much longer uh, than what we really thought. One is clearly uh, the fact that there was a lot of demand stimulus that came out of the reaction to the pandemic, and especially after. The pandemic had sort of uh, played played itself out for the most part. Um, I don't think there, you know, you know, you can think however you want to think about that, but I think that that's kind of an environmental fact. And then there's Fed policy, which was very accommodative for quite a, quite a while. The rapid reaction of rates last year over the past year has been a reflection of the fact that yeah, we were stuck in a very accommodative kind of place and the committee decided it needed to get out of it. All three of those kind of are in play. Uh, and as we kind of get to the other side of all of this, we'll, there will be lots of dissertations written on, um, you know, how you know, you'll portion uh, the influence of each of those elements. But, you know, you, you know, I would, you know, I think you have to say, fiscal, very stimulative fiscal policy was part of the story. I like that uh, dissertation idea. Something just here. over here. Yes, hi. Um, Anthony Papasu. I'm here as an MC campus as a student for wealth management. It's a pleasure to have you here. Thank you so much for speaking at our campus. I'm very excited, so I'm going to throw a lot of things at you, too, but I guess the answer is I apologize. Um, but so, with obviously a lot of everything going on, you talked about this uh, soft landing, which I, I truly want to believe you. But I mean, when you look at, you know, the economy, there's there's not much room to go out. If you look at political grandstanding on both sides, um, McCarthy proposed another bill for a debt ceiling raise, and still nothing come of it. Um, what are some, I guess, positive things like that that give you this notion that it's still possible for a soft landing? And how does doing your job with all of these other factors? Yeah, so I think the I think the the, the best case uh, to be optimistic rests on how unusual this whole event has been. Um, you know, typically um, you get late into the uh, into the cycle uh, of, uh, of 
uh, late in the business cycle. And what you find is there is, you know, a ton of leverage that people have gotten themselves kind of out over their skis in terms of the balance sheets of households, the balance sheets of businesses, the financial condition of the private sector is precarious uh, for lots of different reasons. That, that just absolutely is not characteristic of this time around. I've never, you know, really kind of seen the degree of mismatch between the amount of workers that firms want to hire and the amount of workers available uh, to do the work. Um, particularly um, um, given the kind of demographics of the labor market, this is a problem that's not going to resolve itself. And I think we have a sense that businesses are going to be less inclined to rapidly shed uh, workers, particularly if the slowdown is modest and, and mild. So look, I mean, I will, again, this is, this is like big confession day. Um, History is not on our side on this. There's no, you know, there's no doubt about it, and I don't think any Fed speaker has said anything different. Um, you know, usually these sorts of tightening cycles end up with, you know, kind of some, a downturn in the economy. But this doesn't look like normal history, and it doesn't feel like normal history, and I mean, I guess I would even maybe point to sort of the government supports which help shore up household uh, balance sheets that just sort of put us into in a much um, steadier place by which to, uh, from which to kind of deal with the, the hit that's maybe coming to the economy. And maybe that hit for that reason won't be so, so bad. A good confession. Uh, Greg, with our, uh, uh, our next question. So Greg Ferrero, uh, thank you for being here this afternoon. By the way, speaking of the 70s and 80s, uh, this week in Miami, we served up some 70s style gas lines for you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, the question relates to the real estate market. So I've been hearing for a little while now that you're starting to see some articles about, uh, particularly in the office space in some of the northern cities, uh, as uh, the loans on, on real estate roll over and so I heard a number of somewhere in the neighborhood of two trillion dollars in the next three years, let's say. Um, that uh, the terms are going to be much different, much higher interest rates, and it makes some of the deals that were made by the, the owners of those buildings non-economic at this point. And uh, the, the story goes that they're going to basically come back the keys and the banks are going to get stuck with these buildings that you know are not worth nearly as much as as uh, they used to be, um, and, and it could potentially blow holes in their balance sheets and create, create or add to another banking crisis. I was curious if, if this is something that's hit your radar screen yet, and if you guys are looking at that. The answer is yeah. I mean, different question whether we've drawn a conclusion uh, uh, about it, but that, you know, that, uh, I mean, even before kind of the um, SVB event, and the, I mean, that was clearly on our mind. This was, you know, the, the one place where we saw, um, you know, a real effect of the interest rate increase was residential uh, housing, of course, and the CRE bit was basically moving out there. We knew it, we know it. 
Um, so, you know, charity and, you know, many of our efforts, I mean, obviously we talk to bankers all the time. I mean, that is one of the kind of key data points uh, as to, um, you know, how tough uh, this is going to go. The, you know, the, you know some of the things you mentioned, there are, there's obviously a lot of geographic kind of differences. Um, the Northeast doesn't, you know, whenever I come down here collecting information from uh, our business contacts, I always remind myself I've got to fly to the South Florida discount rate. Uh, be, you know, because they, this is not a representative place uh, in, 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 in many ways. And so, but several places are doing great. I was in, even in Chicago uh, last week, and I was talking to someone who was kind of moving into a new office space. And he said, I'm taking his word for it, but he told me that office occupancy is in the loop. I mean, in downtown Chicago, it was like 90%. Um, uh, so that, you know, I, we're not seeing that, is all I can say. The work home from home phenomenon is really kind of interesting because, I mean, it is a fact. I see it on Mondays and Fridays and driving to work on Atlanta. Um, the, um, it, it's real. I'm here to stay. My friend Nick Blue uh, spends a lot of time thinking about this. But what it means for something like kind of the physical space needed is really kind of an interesting question because. You know, in my, in, in, at the bank, we have, uh, in the research department, through most of the bank, we have like a three-day in-person requirement. Um, and so most people come in Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and then they work remotely. Well, look, that everyone's in on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, I mean, we need the same amount of space to do our work, even though we're not kind of completely occupying it or, or, or using it to its maximum capacity all the time. So there's a lot of moving pieces. In, in, in all of this, uh, and um, uh, as I said, as of yet, the warning signs of kind of impending real severe distress is not there. But that doesn't mean you know it's not going to be there. Uh, particularly, I mean, we do the same thing, you know, as resets begin to kind of come into full bloom. We'll, we'll see how that uh, how that plays out, but. It's, you know, of the, of the many things we watch, that's near the time. Thanks for question. I got Nelson Sotomayor, I'm the economics professor here. Um, my question was regarding bank reserve requirements. Because back in March of 2020, we worked on the Fed is instituting this program upon the Fed. I wonder if there's any appetite to, to raise it and to revisit minimum reserve requirements as a, as a, as a policy. Yeah, I don't know of any. I mean, the short answer to that is I, I, I don't know of any. Um, reserve requirements have not very often been used as a active policy tool. Um, I don't want to say anything too definitive about that because, you know, when, once I do something, I'll yeah, write papers and it but, but I know of no plan to go to that direction. Andre, next question. Hey, John. How are you? Uh, it's good to see you. Uh, Dave, thanks for this. Uh, thanks to my media college, economic uh, program, it's been outstanding. I'm a little bit to see the lines uh, piling up back here. So, a uh, question for you, Dave. One of the things that Chair Powell's been citing is, in particular, in terms of inflation metrics, CPI services less shelter. Now, to that point, um, 
my question is, and it's getting pointed, but I'm happy to you know, keep it open-ended and, and hear your thoughts on this. It seems like the only time we've ever had that de-escalate fairly quickly has been when we've been in a development sort of session. So does it essentially imply, and this kind of goes back to the conversation earlier about Phillips Earth and its ability and its strength today, and how it's somewhat dwindled. Does this essentially mean, mean, mean that we use job losses because that's the only other time being able to get that measure at least uh, down in a fairly rapid fashion? Yeah, so, um, I mean, there, the, the reason Chair Powell has kind of focused on it, of course, is that um, we do, ex we, we are, we're already seeing pretty significant disinflation in goods. So, and we, for every reason to believe, I was talking earlier about the PPI, there's every reason to believe that will continue on and we'll get back to the level of goods, basically deflation that characterized most of the pre-pandemic period. We know the housing elements change with a lag um, and uh, you know the dynamics of that are in some ways breaking the cake. Uh, it's taking much longer than kind of technically you thought it would, but um, so we'll see relief of pressure on that. So what's left is this kind of uh, services that's housing. Um, and the other element that makes that important, of course, is that's most sensitive to wages. Um, labor is a major cost in that kind of sector of, of, of the economy. Um, it does not have to go back down to 2%. Uh, what it, it just has to moderate because it's all going to average out. It always does. Remember, you know, the two percent was never two percent uniformly. Um, so um, the reason that's being emphasized is because it feels like it may be the stickier part of the inflation picture, and uh, is the part that is most related to kind of Phil's question, really, if you think about it, because of the wage component. Uh, and it's sticking up there and not changing. So um, seeing moderation in that segment of the, uh, of the price market basket is kind of, I think, the key signal that we are entering, we are in a period of dynamics that are truly moving us in the right direction. We were going to get disinflation um, uh, as a result of these other elements. Uh, and we'll continue to get some disinflation resulted in some elements. The question is, where do we get stuck if we do get stuck? And that's probably going to show up show up there. I wish I could give you a forecast of kind of where, whether um, uh, that can be successful without job loss. The story uh, about how it can be successful without job loss is twofold. I mentioned one one of them earlier, if wage pressures persist in that sector, um, the adjustment need not be in prices to consumers, the adjustment may come in margins for businesses. Um, the, the second element uh, of it, I forgot. <laughs> I, know, I know it's a tricky one, so for background, <laughs> I'm not actually working on fixed income in terms of front and center for us. <laughs> So look, the you know here, here's here's how we measure these gaps between labor demand and supply. You know, there's a lot of open job vacancies, 
relative in the supply of, of workers. So you can close the gap between labor demand and labor supply by destroying jobs, by just you know having firms destroy jobs. But you can also close the gap by having jobs step back on their plans for expansion. So it means growth slowing, movements, employment goes slower than it otherwise would have been, but it doesn't need to be an outright contraction of, 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 of size. So that's kind of the, the logic of this. Some of this is an adjustment in um, planned expansion. Some of it is an adjustment in margin, and that really is the essence of the soft lands. I guess this introduces job openings. Yeah, that's a whole other section. I mean, what's the girl? Yeah, I'm not looking. That's for tricky to also, but I appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, Jose. Hi, Dave. Thanks a lot. Curious on your thoughts on residential real estate. Coming out of the pandemic, we saw a lot of investors pile into multi family asset class. Uh, rents have been softening. Uh, residential real estate, single family, on the other hand, has been quite robust. Haven't been many transactions, but prices have stayed elevated. Uh, I think, based on affordability, you see some softness in price. Curious your thoughts. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the fact is we have kind of a structural problem with housing, right? And we kind of structurally have excess demand. Um, the fact that the cost of construction are high, so were high before. I'm not even sure interest rates are the sort of prime culprit on the supply side, but almost certainly they're not. Uh, only as they kind of feed in demand in the short run. This is not going to be a long run today. Um, the cost of land, I mean, look, I mean, you're in a place where, you know, what, what, what's the issue? The issue is co cost of land um, and the material cost of building. Um, there is not really a dynamic in place that kind of sets us up for softness in the labor market for an extended period of time. You can see it through a cycle, of course, and we may. But at the end of you know, I say you know, at the end of all of this, we're going to be faced with uh, the same problems that we were faced with before the pandemic, only worse. And that is, we don't have enough workers. Uh, we don't have workers with the right combination of skills. Uh, we don't have enough housing for them. We have kind of an urban mismatch between the labor market and the infrastructure to support that labor market. I mean, these are huge challenges, uh, and they're not going away. Maybe part of the good news is, is it kind of puts a floor kind of on how, um, um, you know, soft, things we'll get in for how long. Uh, but it also makes the inflation issue that much more kind of difficult. Uh, as I said, I mean, we're a little bit surprised kind of that the kind of housing elements of prices have not softened more than, uh, that, than they have. And we're still seeing uh, kind of uh, the influence uh, from that sector on, on the inflation measures. Uh, I think it's probably a technical problem, but I would not dismiss entirely the fact that there are a lot of structural issues in that market in particular that just simply are going to stick with us in our story one way or another. Uh, next question, uh, gentlemen over here. Hey, good afternoon. I am Pierre Moran. 
I am an economics professor at Miami Dade College. I'm here I understand that it's difficult for any central bank to control inflation when the inflation factors that are affecting inflation uh, come from the supply side. In this case, we, we, we have three supply shops, three big supply shops affected. Uh, the first, the college, and then the oil shop, and then the war, between Russia and Ukraine. And, uh, and obviously that has increased the inflation for HCV. And the standard is set up in 2021, the beginning of this whole shop, is set up a certain because I think that maybe before or the fair was expected that the shop could be a temporary shop. This is my shop, the old shop could be a temporary shop. And they and uh, but uh, let's think that the typical case that the inflation rate persists at the levels that we have now for the next two years or the next two years or next two years. And I understand that we said that the for example change the the, the inflation target is not on the on the table. Um, but what will happen in that situation if the inflation rate persists and the expectations are already affected and, and maybe we have another supply shock? What will happen in that situation? Well, I mean, I, I can only kind of repeat the, the um, position that has been taken by 